0: So, Hi Felicia is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. Um, One of my guilty pleasures is um, criminal minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an unsub by the fact that, that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I, I do do that. So I'm using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends, for folks who are basically in my sphere at first, to interview and have some conversations. Because I've always been curious about um, you know, where people come from, what their interests are, and I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about, maybe I know nothing about. So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests. And um, please feel free to comment, send questions, um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on Hi Felicia. <laughs> Osa Schwab is my guest on High Felicia today. Osa Schwab is a creative visionary. I totally agree with that. Who loves people and appreciates science and the arts as catalysts for innovation and a vibrant community. Born in Sweden, you really were—you were born outside. This got a European flair, but raised in the U.S., Osa feels like a citizen of the world, connected to others not by culture but by curiosity and care. This is a great bio. Formerly working in the high tech world, and later. As an ADHD coach, Osa currently works to investigate opportunities for artists, performers, and cultural organizations to create locally. She does this through her business, Malden Creates LLC, and in collaboration with a wide array of individuals and groups representative of Malden's diversity. It is true. I've been to events with Osa, and everybody in Malden knows her. It is this diversity in Malden that gives Osa great joy in her work, whether producing a performance series or concert, coordinating and directing a pop-up gallery gift shop in an unoccupied commercial space on Main Street, helping to plan an arts and culture summit in Malden featuring immigrant artists, performers, or hosting a talk show. To give voice to local change makers, her aim is to celebrate humanity. One of her most recent projects, a gallery, a year-long gift shop art gallery and cultural hub that hosted over 50 events will continue as a virtual creative collaborative space bringing performances and art to Malden. The gallery is host to a performance series of four concerts at Malden Senior Community Center and an open mic at Caribbean Islands Restaurant. For details about the performance series and other projects coming up, visit thegalleryinc.com. So (laughs) this is my Felicia podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan. My guest today is Usa Schwab. Hello, Felicia. (laughs) So I asked you on today because I think you and I met when you were running the gallery last year, and then we had a series of lunches and many conversations about our our fandom of MATV and all the things... (laughs) We'd love to see it do moving forward, but you and I also have some intersection in our histories from coaching, probably people that we know, so I thought perhaps we could just have a conversation today about lots of different stuff. Um, Let's start with Malden. When did you move to Malden?
1: I moved to Malden 17 years ago, and I mark that by the birth of my son, who is just about to turn 17, and we... Moved to Malden because we could buy a house here. It was unaffordable.
0: Mm -hmm. What section or neighborhood
1: do you live in? We live uh, in Ward 6, which is the east
0: part of Malden, close to Revere. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah, we're in that neighborhood, too. How have you seen Malden change?
1: Well, it's changed in many ways, physically, of course, with the recent building boom in the downtown of Malden there are so many new apartment buildings. Of course, the city hall has been, the old city hall is now gone and the street is opening up. So from that standpoint, it's very physically different. Also, we have a bike path, which makes it physically different, although you have to find the bike path to notice that. But it's also changed from my own vantage point, because when I first moved, I saw it as a kind of a city wannabe, too much trash, um, not enough beautiful structures, uh, not enough trees. So I had a kind of a negative view of it physically, but it changed in my vantage point when I started to meet people and I met some incredible people. And that's when, for me, my perspective of Malden changed. no matter whether it physically changed. But in my heart, in my mind, I mm-hmm. saw something different than I saw when I first arrived.
0: When did you start? You were in high tech first and then coaching or am I getting that right?
1: Yes, it was an evolution of work uh, experiences and learning that brought me, you know, I did technical support for many years, and I seemed to do well with technology. I could learn anything, any software, not hardware, but software mostly. Um, And then I landed in a, um, a startup application service provider. So we were working when the internet was really fresh Mm -hmm. out of the oven, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and uh, providing uh, collaboration software to construction design teams. And so I was tasked to build the help desk. And I also did some service development, uh, worked a little bit on product development, and uh, did training and project management for that company. And that was very exciting. That was that was sort of the pinnacle of my high tech Experience and then the internet bubble burst big time. Yeah. So the whole company disbanded, and um, I then spent a few years without work, unfortunately. (laughs) But, um, and then I shifted and I went back to school and I um, thought about, you know, what do I want to do? I always loved people. I wanted to help people at one point. I really wanted to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. I wanted to unravel the complexities of a person's journey especially Mm -hmm. if it went in a negative way and uh, I then somehow decided against uh, getting a PhD well because I didn't have money but (laughs) I decided to um, explore the world of coaching and um and because while I was in school, I sort of developed an interest in what's known as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, mm-hmm. um, an interest in that because so many people who have that diagnosis or have those symptoms of you know inability to focus or organize themselves or uh, pay attention to uh, uh, sustain for sustained periods of time. Um, They also happen to be very creative oftentimes or find alternative routes if they're lucky enough to do so. Um, You'll find among artists, among writers, among performers, among entrepreneurs – among people who um, chase storms, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's a pretty high proportion of people with that kind of brain wiring, and I found that so intriguing, and I wanted to work with them, and I wanted to work with them in the most effective way, and I, after a lot of research, found out coaching was really an up-and-coming way to help those kind of people.
0: So the way that you've described your um, professional journey and some of your interests and loves, um, there's only a few details you change that story a tiny bit, but that's exactly what I did. So <laughs> Really? Yeah, so I was in high tech. I can learn any – I'm not a hardware person, but I've learned any software. So no matter where I was, I've always been thrown at, like, the new computer system or designing some sort of thing. And I was in – help. I was in a bootstrap startup when the thing burst, and uh, it was all – it was the – uh, starting of e-commerce. So I was the like project manager for all these large like huge catalog uh, like Nordstrom's and uh, putting all that stuff online. The company closed. I got sent back to school um, because I was on, un- on unemployment at the time and they wanted to retrain people. and ended up taking an HTML class <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then
0: um, it went up against do I get a PhD and something else because I had been on the undergraduate track in um, psychology and thinking I was going to be a school counselor and then got my master's in communications and then uh, thought I'd go back to school and I was looking at becoming a PA or a, a licensed social worker or something like that. I ended up going back into healthcare, but in a customer service fashion. Uh, so I worked for a large uh, healthcare company for a really long time and sort of ascended through the ranks and ended up doing business analyst work for them. So sort of like um, customer relations management software, tracking data points for them. That's unbelievable, <laughs> and, the from, and from there, I went back into coaching because... I wanted to help people, so yeah, it's really funny. Um, I don't have any ADHD diagnosis, but my partner that I was with for twenty years had an a- 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 had attention touch- had ADHD and a learning disorder. Hmm. So I learned a lot about that through him because while we were together, I knew there was something going on with him because he was very impulsive. He had really great um, social skills, very impulsive, really smart. Um, Uh, so many different, and it could be hyper-focused on something, but it was um, just really scattered all the time. Mm -hmm. And we would have these, he would have like these outbursts, and I'd be like, I think you're kind of scaring me. Like, let's get this figured out. And he wanted to go back to school because he had the GI Bill. And um, I kind of urged him to get a diagnosis through the VA because he could have all that testing done for free. And he came back with the with the diagnosis and for him it was like a huge like body blow like he didn't didn't know how to deal with it Mm -hmm. thought there was something basically wrong with him so he was being told basically in his way he interpreted it, it was like my brain is fucked up like organically fucked up
1: wow so he felt like that was a stamp of disapproval or yeah. defect yeah as opposed to the relief that many people yes. feel at that yeah. diagnosis
0: yeah and um it took him a long time when he was going through school he wanted to like power through it and um with his particular brand he just would get overwhelmed really really quickly So he had a full class load, I think, for maybe a semester. And then I was just like, you need to drop that down because he was still trying to work and do do that. And it was just too much. And um, he was also not availing himself of all of the great services that they had at the time. At least he was going to UMass Boston. They had really great services for students. Extra. um, They had support groups. They had. Extra time for tests and for papers, and also letting professors know they would give you extra outside of office hours kind of time, um, the ability to repeat a class if you needed to. And uh, I think the first two years, he wouldn't do any of it. So he really struggled through. And then he started sort of slowly accepting and realizing that this was going to be the thing that was going to help him be successful Mm -hmm. rather than being weak or undetermined or...
1: Um, you mean uh, the use of these resources would yes. help him
0: be successful? Yes. I see. Rather mm-hmm. than him looking at them like there's something wrong, again, with me for needing this extra help. I was uh, clarifying
1: that only because in my early exposure to ADHD from from the literature, um, there were several books and perspectives that intrigued me so much, like uh, Ned Hallowell, who is, of course, famous for um, uh, Driven to Distraction, mm-hmm. and then he wrote several subsequent books that sort of fill in the blanks. He and John Rady were famous um, kind of pioneers in, in literature. Um, but they proposed that ADHD could be, in fact, an advantage Mm -hmm. however with the caveat that you have to kind of work out some of the kinks it's not by itself an advantage but there it does come with some benefits that can help you uh, have an edge in some other realms like you know if you're not able to focus um, and you're constantly distracted well you know you're sort of you have a permeable um, screen Uh, through which you can see all kinds of other possibilities uh, simultaneously to your current situation. So that lends itself to a lot of creativity where you're kind of bombarded by stuff. And when things are bombarded together, oftentimes that can lead to new ideas or innovation. And so you'll find... um, that is definitely true in, in some cases, not all cases, but um, I found that so intriguing to take something that someone else thinks of as a defect or yeah. a problem that you translate it into a an asset if you work it.
0: Yeah, I love that. The other thing that people, at least he was, he's my prime example, so I'll sort of back, continuously refer back to him, but This idea that he had learned to compensate so much from his upbringing and not having a a clear diagnosis or what that was that, like you said, he had opened up other areas of his brain because it's like, okay, so you're predominantly right hand, but your left hand wants to work all the time. Well, now you can use both hands. So there was like – like he had developed these incredible social skills. So I'm sure there were, there were a couple of jobs that he had where he probably had the skill set. But because of his diagnosis, he really was not fulfilling the job requirement. And he knew it and they kind of knew it. But they loved him so much they were not willing to tell him to leave. Wow. So – and there were other times when I'm sure that um, – his personality and his people skills kind of got him around certain things, or out, charm. or out of certain things, or um, and also he had um, he had this hyper focus on things, so that you know, mm-hmm. if he was bringing something into the home, usually or an item that he was really interested in, it had been researched to death. <laughs> like the best, like I tell a story. I started telling stories. Like moth like stories. Yes. I took a moth class or a story, story, oh, uh, boss. Uh, I can't think of the organization now, but and it's all about this pair of socks that I found when I moved out of my apartment with him. And it was like this the most well researched pair of socks ever <laughs> because he was a pilot. And so he wanted to make sure that he was wearing clothing. That he could wear in the cockpit that if he died in a fiery plane crash would not melt to the skin if they were under high heat and pressure oh my this pair of socks it was like they had to be a certain blend and they had to be organic fabric or whatever so it was like this very well researched pair of socks and we went through many iterations of socks so Mm -hmm. I knew all about like the history of these socks and they're just typical socks they were like short black athletic socks that if you were in a fiery plane crash you could wear them and they would not melt to your skin so
1: that's incredible. Well, that certainly rings many, many bells. <laughs> I can think of many people, including myself, and yeah, I won't incriminate those folks online. But <laughs> yeah,
0: he, he's okay because I've already asked his permission to tell these stories, oh, so he right. knows. And um, <clears throat> he also was really good at maintaining relationships.
1: And that's quite. That's not everybody who can do that, but um, but I think a lot of, if I think about, you know, even myself, you know, I, there's so many times when I really should have been blasted for for forgetting to follow up on XYZ or misplacing XYZ and my husband should have divorced me or for many times, you know, (laughs) I I create a lot of chaos and and, um, uncertainty to a large degree uh, with my friends and my family. And yet, you know, there's a lot of love there. So there's, That part of me that's able to connect, you know, share that I care um, Mm -hmm. kind of sometimes um, uh,
0: reprieves me of the other things that I do that create a lot of problems. (laughs) So So how did you find the coach training in terms of how it informed yourself, how you would apply it to yourself, and then how you were able to use it with clients in that realm or other realms? So you're
1: asking if how uh, my training to learn about coaching helped me to uh, explore myself and have processes to listen to myself and then how that affected working with other people? Yep. That's a really good question because I think the self-reflection – and dialogue with myself in some ways didn't change as much as it could have in the training process of coaching. And in part because I am a natural question asker, and I have always been, you know, from early time, uh, as far as far back as I can remember, I've always been curious about people and would more inclined to ask them questions and let them talk than talk myself. Mm -hmm. So and I always kind of put other people as more interesting or more or better or something than myself. So
0: but the training itself certainly... So you didn't see yourself as the center of the wheel? No. Do you see yourself as that way now?
1: Uh... Well, that's a complicated question because sometimes I do and sometimes I don't and sometimes I do in bad ways. I think I more rests on my shoulders than really is true and that really there are other people who are part of the solution whether it's, you know, solving, you know, scarcity of art in Malden or mm-hmm. any number of things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the negative, there's a negative focus on self that I am the worst, and nobody is as bad as I am in this Mm -hmm. area. So,
0: do you think that hypercritical self nature is just part of your personality, or is that like an ADHD thing? Because I saw that in my partner as well.
1: I think it's both. I think my personality has a dark part, um, and that.
0: Is it Brené Brown that has a shadow self? Is that?
1: Ah, uh, there's the Myers Briggs or, or okay. uh, Jungian. Uh, there's uh, there's a shadow uh, piece in that philosophy. I I don't know enough about Brené Brown's work to say whether that's just, part I of was it. Just curious. But um, but I think everybody has a, a shadow self that can be very inform that can really yes. inform your life. Yes, and, and you really need to pay attention to it. It can be a very if I say positive thing, even if it's a negative thing, you know, um, but you know, I, I, I do think there was definitely some reflection. The one thing I will say that, um, the coaching coach training really brought to the forefront for me is that as a coach, you are really your instrument. So Mm -hmm. to the extent that you are cleared out and you're taking good care of yourself and, you know, you have a good flow, you know, as my mom calls it, you know, mental hygiene, mm-hmm. um, then you can be a channel for that person to, uh, you know, uh, mirror what you're saying. Or, yep. you know, if you don't take care of yourself and you don't, uh, aren't clear about who you are, then you really can't be a good instrument for change. Yep. Um, yep. So, so that was very powerful to me. And whether or not you practice as a coach or, or you practice as, you know, other people, you know, customer-facing mm-hmm. uh, profession. That concept is important, and the concept to listen to your intuition. Yeah, uh, not just about other people, but about yourself. And mm-hmm. and that actually has been applicable in my life for sure.
0: It's um, one of the things that um, friends who are coaches and friends who are not coaches and I have talked about is this idea of. Being self-reflective, but also um, going between wanting or being attracted to being expert and also um, fluctuating to that other extreme of feeling like the imposter. So it's sort of like, you know, and knowing the difference between intuition and negative self-talk, and when it's negative self-talk, Um, because again, like it's, like you've said, different aspects of our personality are just, it's just information. It doesn't have a positive or a negative charge. Intuition doesn't have a positive or a negative charge. It actually is a neutral charge, Mm -hmm. but we then attach a negative or positive attribute to it Mm -hmm. when it really should just be information. And then we can sort of decide from there what we do with it and how we apply it. Um, Excellent point. Yeah, But the... Um, that, for me, has been such a huge thing because I've realized I can be a good coach and still make mistakes.
1: <laughs> I can one. be a
0: good person and still make mistakes.
1: Really? Are you sure? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, we should all allow that flexibility for ourselves. It doesn't mean you're not a high achiever. It doesn't mean that you want to strive for progress or, Mm -hmm. you know, perhaps in some cases you think it's going to be perfection. Um, It's good if you have people around you or even yourself, if you can hold yourself up and be like, slow down a little bit. Absolutely. (laughs) Don't have to get everything done. It's not all on your shoulders.
1: Yeah, you know, um, you bring up some really good points, and it, ma- it reminds me of something very, very powerful. This is actually another thing that coach training taught me, um, which talking about taking these, you know, potential negative um, information as just information and mm-hmm. data and that you can um, just observe don't judge, mm-hmm. and then you can act. You know, you can respond to it in in a way that makes sense. But it's hard, though. It's it's hugely difficult, especially of of course, if it's it's emotional or there's some um, reminder of something in the past. But that way of regarding self. Is something that many people I I found, you know, coaching folks with ADHD is very, very difficult to do because there's so many memories of, you know, being, um, you know, chastised or punished or, you know, uh, made humiliated or so you have this memory of these horrible emotions, but um, and the other thing you said kind of made me think about in my experience and probably your experience too, have you not encountered people who you think are exquisite, have these wonderful ideas and could make an amazing contribution to society, but they have held themselves back by a belief system that they can't do that or um, I'm really not the one, I'm I'm an imposter, I'm telling myself I'm having this idea which is really a curse because I really shouldn't be the one to carry that out. I think that is... If there's anything coaches can do for that kind of thing,
0: I mean, I think coaching is a great tool for that kind of thing, because... You almost make me want to cry a little bit, because that that description is exactly who my parents are. Mm -hmm. Like, unbelievably hardworking, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm heart-centered, and they both have this idea... Oh, I can't. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh well, we like. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't ask for that. Like there's just like over and over and over and over and over and over and over throughout their lives, and all the things they accomplished, and all the things they have overcome, and all the stuff that they've done, they still see themselves in that world. Like, well, oh, I, 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 like, mm. simple example. There was construction on their street. They're both retired. They're home. Um, My mother is like neighborhood watch, likes to always be looking out the windows. They were like repaving the sidewalks or something. She watched the construction guy come down their driveway, unhook their hose, put it up to whatever machinery they had, turn the tap on, fill up their truck with water, turn it off, and walk back up their driveway. Never said a word. And I was like, you didn't call a city? Like, that's illegal. They were taking your water. Your water bill is going to be crazy. I was like, first of all, like, if it was an emergency, he could have knocked on your door and asked. Second of all, that was illegal. He went on your property and used your water. He stole your water. And she was like, oh, I I couldn't say anything. It was like, you were watching him do it. You're mad about it now. Like, over and over. There's like a, a hundred different examples, a thousand different examples of things like that. Do you
1: have any sense about why she didn't feel comfortable
0: to push back? I think it's that constant talk like you described it, like they just can never see themselves asking the question or pushing back or like my mother and father might do that in private or might complain about the thing or even know that the thing is wrong. Mm -hmm. But there's something about like not speaking up or not talking Mm. back and it's like a, it's a triggering thing. It's a mm-hmm. thing perhaps coming from like a small place mm-hmm. and trauma histories mm-hmm. and different things. But it's the idea that you don't see yourself being the one that can stop that thing from happening or pushing back or whatever. And
1: to me, the big puzzle is, the big question is how can a community invite people to push beyond those fears yeah. to plug in to share to ask to be part of even if they're not comfortable yeah, in yeah. the past doing that that's a that's tricky i mean you can do that in small you know like um you know small groups you know where you build up the trust, yep. uh, obviously, but even like you know let's say um a community like Malden now it's a big city, it's sixty thousand but nevertheless to to evoke a feeling where it's okay to ask questions, it's okay right. to ask for your needs to be met it's okay right, to right. to um explore or ask for something that doesn't exist yet because right, it will meet right. your regardless neighbors of do your
0: socioeconomic background or your immigration status or your language skills or your gender or your yeah spot on yeah and and that's because we all regardless of who we show up as we all have that insecurity like absolutely and that triggers but yeah so I think from a very early age like I I got the message, you should not talk up or speak back or whatever, but I'm hugely vocal and always have been, Mm -hmm. so that was always a hard, um, hard thing to resist.
1: You mean to resist not speaking up, Yes. Or, oh, and so then how I was did getting your parents, trouble, well I was getting in big trouble oh, when I did it, like that's that's just, that's not good you're you're making waves, and you yes. shouldn't make waves, don't you make just waves. you know be a good girl and be obedient or whatever, and
0: not even don't make waves, so it was not don't make waves and don't stand out, so like. You know, I was constantly told you're the smartest one in the class or you're the tallest or you're pretty or you're whatever or like – and I was into theater and I – but like, you know, my mother – I remember one uh, time I wanted to be the crossing guard (laughs) because you get to wear a little sash. (laughs) But that was a really cool thing. My mother was like, oh, no, absolutely not. And I was like, but why? And she was like, well, you don't want to stand out. I was like, now, absolutely, I do. I want to, <laughs> and I want to wear a sign No. the
1: Now, where be. are your parents from? I mean, did they come from another country, or did, were they born my and raised here? Dad
0: was, my dad was first generation. His parents were both immigrants. Uh, he was the youngest of six, and he grew up in East Boston, and he grew up mostly with a grandmother who didn't speak English. And
1: what language did she speak? French. Oh,
0: French. And then my mom uh, grew up uh, fairly well off, but lost her mother very early, like when she was eight or nine. And she lived with her father and her grandmother and her granddad in Brookline. So very different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother went to college. She had a master's degree when she met my dad. My dad had a high school education, but my dad had $10,000 in the bank, when, <laughs> oh, like ready to go. Yeah. He had been working since he was like... 10 or whatever he was a shoeshine boy and then a paper boy and then he worked for the retired from the boston globe he had worked there his whole life basically industrious yeah. people yes very industrious never saw either one of them take a sick day my dad had a, his gallbladder removed that was the only time i'd ever seen him like that and i think he had like teeth taken out or whatever and that was the only time i ever saw him like laying down when he wasn't like supposed to be asleep
1: You know, it's so interesting because my parents were the exact opposite, I would say. not. Well, they certainly worked hard. My dad worked very hard as a scientist, but, um, you know, standing out was not an issue. Speaking up was not an issue. He spoke up all the time. He wrote research papers. You know, I remember he... Uh, exposed, you know, the crime in Cape Cod. I mean, he was, he was a geochemist, really had no business studying crime, but he did a report on crime and, you know, constantly pushing the envelope, constantly, um, you know, either exposing, I mean, even to this day, um, he's now uh, a, a professor at George Mason University. He's retired from the U- U.S. Geological Survey, but now he's uh, focusing his um, interest on policy, um, Amer- African American education, wow. um, you know, science policy, uh, environmental issues, uh, the political um, uh, stagnation, or or uh, the the um, contentiousness of politics and industry mm-hmm. and so he he he's an agitator of uh you know to expose truth and and so and my mom is an artist you know artistic and you know very kind of uh, not not your normal uh american mom she wasn't american but you know is certainly uh, anything but the norm you know so it was almost like the the idea of blending in was just not even in our vocabulary. Though I will say that you know my mom grew up in Sweden, and where at the time uh, be Sweden Sweden is uh, certainly when she was growing up a homogeneous society where you were to blend in, you were to conform, you were to not be exceptional or be you know uh, outside of you know the the normal expectation and and not too loud and you know mm-hmm. so but she hated that that uh, the kind of atmosphere you mm-hmm. know it was very stifling because she was interested in all kinds of different things you know exotic you know <laughs> um, so it's kind of interesting how we had you know yeah. kind of opposite atmosphere but yet have very similar kind of yeah, uh, yeah. pathways. And how
0: did your parents inform um, how you your views of the world? I mean, it sounds kind of like I could guess, but...
1: Well, yeah, for sure. There's the embrace of uh, art, music, um, science, different cultures. We had different... Social justice. Social justice, uh, yes, that was uh, not... Uh, kind of, yes, it was not like my parents were uh, overt activists, you know, leading rallies and things like that, although my mother was part of the League of Women Voters at the time, mm. and uh, she was a big, um, always interested in Native American uh, issues and had lots of books and would speak about it and um also very disappointed in the status of women when she arrived which was in 1962 and uh coming from a you know a Scandinavian country where they were a little bit ahead of the game yeah, here yeah, yeah so you know from a they were vocal about all these things and then my dad instituted one of the first um internship programs for minorities at the U.S. Geological Survey. I think that is the case. Um, And then my mother had a, a variety of friends, many of whom when they visited us, the neighbors would take note. So she was like, you know, we were all like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with you people? I mean, I just couldn't understand that mentality at all and I still can't understand it but I know it's a reality it's it exists people will judge based on your religion based Mm -hmm. on how you look based on your Mm -hmm. skin's color based on your how much money you make I mean it just did you grow up
0: around here or
1: I grew up in Cape Cod okay so Falmouth um which is where my parents used to summer another (laughs) intersection this is what part of Falmouth. Uh, we lived in the downtown. My dad worked in Woods Hole. Yep. Which was...
0: Which great. was our our favorite spot. Go on. Isn't yeah. that so much fun. My That's neighbor funny. growing up, her last name was Mokley, and her brother was out of um, NOAA on Woods Hole. Yep. Yeah. So we used to go down there frequently.
1: That's quite a unique place. Mecca we, for the top scientists of the yeah. world. Uh, ocean-oriented scientists. Yeah. I still to love it. I know. It is. It's really so beautiful on the point there. And did you ever go to Martha's Vineyard? Oh,
0: yep. We used to go over for the day. Oh, my gosh. It was a big deal. One of the stories that I wrote from my writer's group was all about going down to the Cape. Oh,
1: my gosh. Yeah. That and is so cool.
0: It's called um, uh, Diving for Treasure. So it's, my, it's about my brother and I and my dad and our sort of adventures going down the Cape and yeah, what that was like with my family. So Oh, I'll have to read that. Yeah, so that's so funny. Because <laughs> we used to go, we used to rent different places in uh, East Falmouth. So.
1: That is, I'm astounded at how many parallels there are.
0: <laughs> there used to be a great coffee shop. Um, it was like my favorite, called The Buttery.
1: Yes, I remember The Buttery.
0: She used to have great pictures of like Peru and places that she'd been. She used to take po- photographs. Have you?
1: Did you ever visit the fishmonger? Was no. that there then? No, no I don't think maybe so. Not.
0: Hmm. The um, the fish place that we used to go to most growing up was um, more towards downtown, uh, across from the mall that um, had the Christmas tree shop in it. It's sort of like it's expanded over the years. It was mostly like a fried fish stand. Sam's? Probably, no, not probably. Sam's. The other place mix oh. some things probably
1: oh yes I have a big recollection
0: <laughs> but we had like favorite little beaches that we would go to and um we used to go to Monot Beach a lot and then there was a tiny little beach that was like at the end other side of Falmouth but you had to have a sticker to get in there and it was sort of like a, it was a point and that was like at high tide you had almost no beach and then there was a wall I can't think of that one and um, we used to jump off the bridges, into yeah. the water.
1: And did you ever, did, uh, they probably didn't have the bike path at that time yet. They just started it. Oh, did yeah, they? Yeah, okay. it just started to get big. Knobska Lighthouse was always a nice point where yeah, you can yeah. see the vista. Um, and do you, there's a Frank Lloyd Wright house, you know where that is? No. So in Woods Hole, uh, in the harbor, you can see it when you take the, one of the island ferries and it'll it's right on a point. It's a the house sort of forms its own peninsula and it's got, you know, windows, you know, three sixty and it's it's quite lovely.
0: As I got older as an adult, we used to go to the little secret hidden beach that was more towards Woods Hole. It was like donated land by Mary something. I can't think of the name of it now, but you had to drive out past the boat club it was like weird parking and then walk through the woods to get to it and it had like a rocky beach Hmm. it was on it was in the boston globe like secret hidden beaches and then i ended up finding it because there was like a little walk through the woods that you can get there and we used to drag friends and coolers and everything to it
1: Hmm. i'll have to i can't remember which one that would be yeah
0: do your parents still live down there
1: no they uh they divorced and my dad moved to virginia just outside of Washington, and my mother lives on the first floor of our house. Oh, okay.
0: So tell me about the arts community and your work now in Malden. Like, how? what brought you to that intersection? Because you seem like you know everybody.
1: I do. (laughs) I feel like I know so many people, but actually it's, I mean, so, as I said, when I first came to Malden, um, I wasn't really plugged in, and I—it was— when my son started to go to school that I began to get to know more people and got involved in a few groups here and there to help the school or, you know, different activities together. Um, My mother was the one who actually invited me into um, the arts community via the people that I met through her. So I met Anne Derso Rose through her. I met several others. San... Kalak, who was a huge pioneer of art in Malden for many years. she devoted herself to having a studio and uh, she had over like four or five hundred artists come in and exhibit and she helped uh, build the art gallery in MATV and uh, the city. City Hall at the time, Mayor Howard had a kind of a gallery in his office space. But I think it was um, a combination of meeting so many different people, artists and uh, musicians, people who are active in the community trying to get things going, and then also my own sort of professional journey, deciding that coaching was a little too solitary for me and I wanted to exercise some of my big picture skills, mm-hmm. which is really the place that brings me joy like what what systems can we put together what groups of people can we put together to have a bigger impact whereas when you're working with an individual you're impacting their life which Mm -hmm. could have huge impact but and I also felt restless in um, the kind of you know aspects of coaching and I also all along I mean uh, art has always been art and creativity you know music performance writing all those things has always been a a part of my life and something that interests me and i admire people who uh, devote themselves to that life work which is very challenging the training is very challenging you know i don't care if you're a writer a dancer musician a visual artist you know there's so much time that goes into that and just that they come up with these things and i I had this, you know, burn like, thing that was growing up in me. Oh, my gosh, these people are so important to society. Why is it so difficult for them to make a living? Why does society make it so difficult for them to do what they're destined to do? Why? You know, it's it just makes no sense to me. And why isn't there more support? Why isn't there more financial resources? I mean, there are some, but um, enough, like, every— and and I started to look around me and you know meet these artists and they struggle and they weren't you know performing in malden and they weren't showing in malden and they weren't selling in malden and I'm like why why not you know and I think bit by bit I just then made the decision that okay I'm going to do some volunteer work in this field And then I did that. Um, I worked with uh, Malden Arts for a bit and MATV for a bit. I did some Malden Reads work. And and then I just decided I'm going to start a business that is devoted to creating opportunities for artists of all types and that they get paid. Now, did I think I could make a living doing that well I was uh, (laughs) I'm not sure I thought it through too much but that's sort of how I made that plunge and that was in 2016 and then immediately uh, what was sort of coinciding with me starting that business is I had a I I, uh, produced an event which um, was an exhibition and a concert and a book and an invitation for the community to engage. It was a multi-layered event, which uh, was really inspired by one pianist who lived in Malden at the time, Yelena Berayeva, who had always wanted to perform the pictures at an exhibition. And she imagined performing that in conjunction with an exhibition, because the nature of the music was, it was a tribute by a composer to an artist friend with the uh, images of some of his paintings in mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we started talking, and then we conceived of this crazy um, idea, and it was very involved. And then because it was a kind of tribute concept, we we really wanted to invite not just classical music fans but other kinds of people to attend, and then people... um, we thought, you know, the idea of tribute is also kind of something like you, you give a tribute to a person in a creative way, and it's powerful. And that's what Mm -hmm. Mussorgsky did. Anyway, that was the start. And then from there, many things happened, you know, it's like, you know, listening to intuition and meeting this person, that person, and it evolved to, you know, now, you know, 2019, where, um, You know, I've had all these different events. The pop up, of course, um, evolved to the gallery, and um, you know, I'm involved in other aspects of city arts. And you know, if it's the the arts, of course, is such a great catalyst for community building. Uh, It crosses all uh, language Mm -hmm. and cultural, socioeconomic barriers, for the most part, not if you want to go to the ballet, then you have to be rich, you Mm -hmm. know, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, so so there's some problems, there's some Mm -hmm. inequities in the thing. But for a city like Malden, where we have, you know, 43% foreign-born, that is going to be a way that we can connect. And for me, it is a social justice issue. It's a social – there's a social justice element to this because – you know, I feel like artists tell the truth about what's going on. They mm-hmm. may tell it in their heart with color or with, you know, phrases of music, mm-hmm. but they tell the truth. And we need to hear the truth. And the other thing is, it's a way for, you know, if you're an immigrant coming from, let's say, Vietnam or somewhere else, language isn't quite perfected yet. If you are creative, you can do something, you know, art, you can connect to the community right away. So that's an immediate step. For the youth, it could be the thing that saves their life mm-hmm. or gets them out of their rut or or connects them with a whole different world. So, I mean, I could go on and on, and I, I know I shouldn't, but um, it's it's now becoming more and more uh clear exactly you know i feel this is a calling for me yeah it's my way it's my You're ministry so good at it it's my ministry I, I you know it's my channel it's my bridge to people mm-hmm. and i'll tell you this is my this is my goal for all the things that i'm doing i want to uh cultivate generous and creative community mm-hmm. that's my goal through all this
0: well, one of the nice intersections, I think you, I met you at the gallery, which was such a great space. And I'd been to obviously shop because I love things that are handcrafted, but also we went to a couple of music concerts and then also spoke at the spoken word poetry night that Jeff Taylor had with his poets and you also introduced me to Jason Rubin, who's a, I guess, a friend, a local author. I then invited him to the Malden Writers Collaborative, and he's also been a guest on my podcast. He came to my cookout because so, he's my neighbor. Awesome. That's <laughs> so, great. and he and my fiance have all these like intersecting musical interests and/or personality things that are so similar that I thought. I think these guys might be man friends if like we could, <laughs> <laughs> we could like get them to talk to each other. Um, so I think that that's how community works. That's how community building works. Um, and I'll just give you. A compliment in that I think sometimes you downplay the skill or the role that you have in that and like it takes the vision it takes the ability to see micro on macro it takes the desire and obviously you have the passion for it Um, but there's plenty of people that are in kind of administrative positions that are looking at bringing artists into the community but they don't have the heart and they don't have the people skills and they um, and those the way, you know, I just changed my tone and I sort of made fun of them. I'm not, but they, they're they one slice of it. And I think the warmth that you do it with and the fact that, you know, going, having been to the Arts and Culture Summit and pretty much everyone I turned to was like, I'm here because of OSA. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that kind of just speaks to the legacy that you've you've brought up to this point and perhaps the future that you're building mm-hmm. because – you. Not everybody has those that vision and that and those skill sets. So that's very unique to you. Bravo. Thank you so. Bravo. Much.
1: Thank you. Well, I mean, my next. Yeah, I feel like my next chapter is really honing my ability to lead in the servant leadership manner. I mean, mm-hmm. like this, this under you know the. The way they describe, many scholars describe leaders who are creating uh, the atmosphere for innovation. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of leader I want to be because I care and because I do have, I do, I can see it. I can see what, what, what could be.
0: Leaders are always better if they're part of the group. Oh, Than oh, totally. like a head standing on the box Absolutely. in front of the group. But what's, That's uh, a certain kind of leader. That's not the kind no, of leader no, you no, want to no, be. No.
1: Oh, please, no. But what's so, so clear to me is the only way powerful impact happens is if we all can plug in in the way that makes sense for us. Yeah. And administrators – Oh my gosh! So needed! you know of Or course. people who are have attention to detail who, are, who who you know make sure things are you know the eyes are dotted and the t's yeah. are crossed yeah and and that's what like that's the next puzzle I want to crack, like how to mobilize people for impact together, you know, that we work really together, like we, we hone in on each other's talents, we hone in on, you know, to, to make something happen, like, uh, whether it's a festival or a concert or workshop for, yep, you know, yep, whatever, yep, yep. you know, that's...
0: And, and it's not like there aren't arts groups in Malden, there are a ton of arts groups in Malden, but do they all cover the same ground? are they all doing the same thing but in their own little silos like so it's a matter of like how everybody talks to each other and right. and i think that's also going to be part of the next chapter at least the way that i see it is totally. how they all talk to each other because Everybody cares, and then individual artists are also necessary, and it's okay. Like, sometimes individual art is a solo pursuit, but then how do you plug into the community that's going to help feed your in- individual pursuit? Perhaps that's a gallery. Perhaps that's makerspace. Perhaps that's a group that has similar interests. Perhaps that's an administrator. Perhaps that's a, yeah. you know, whatever it is. And, and I, I see that also being very exciting in malden right now is there's a starting to emerge this uh facilitation of groups and like absolutely
1: i mean like i went to the opening of the there's a sculpture and a bench and a mural on the art line and i mean i just cried because I was so moved to see this incredible bicycle sculpture on right, the right, bike path, right. and then this beautiful bench, and this mural that was um, uh, d- designed by a local Malden person, and and these and two of the artists were from. Uh, other parts, you know, California and Missouri, mm-hmm. and so this is a piece of the puzzle. It's such an important piece of the puzzle, and so like, yeah, how can we all connect and and draw on some mutual resources, support each other, mm-hmm. um, and really kind of almost like if you've ever heard of um, uh, self-organizing systems, yes, yeah, where you have a few catalysts,
0: but then yep.
1: explosive growth. <laughs> That's yeah, and what like, I'm hoping for. But I
0: always think back to when I hear that is nature, like where does nature do it? Uh-huh. And sort of um, hmm. like one organism will feed off of another and then they'll start to cluster in one area. And then mm-hmm. what do they need for that? They need water and sunlight. So, you know, where would the artist's metaphor be in that? So like we're seeing the clustering. Mm-hmm. We need the water and the sunlight. So that being mm-hmm. probably space mm-hmm. and funding.
1: Space funding and I would say there's another uh, important element um that all the big thinkers about how this happens um is uh spaces to connect. Yep. So whether that's online or uh physical spaces. So yep. where you yep. have networking and you know, casual, not not like just formal but but just right, informal right, right. gatherings. Um, that's really important and I think the the other aspect which is also very interesting and this is part of my next chapter is how you get the business into this whole yeah, thing yeah the business of art and how you make it lucrative how you expand the art markets right and right. that's and that there are minds that can help uh, you know crack that nut and that's those I'm looking for those those brains <laughs> those business brains the,
0: one of the most or more successful, like um, I've known many artists who have been, um, you know, that's their job. That's they go to their studio and they make art all day and they sell it and they go home and that's their job. And I've known writers like that and musicians like that and visual artists like that and dancers and painters and whatever. And the one that comes to mind is a friend's wife who is, um, I think she's from uh, the former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And she just is so cut and dry about business, like, my paintings are $10,000, because people will pay that. And if people can pay more than their $40,000. And like, I'm just very unapologetic, like, this is my time and my energy and my love going into this. And I know the people that buy my work can afford to do it. And she works with interior designers and other reps Mm -hmm. and what have you to sell her work but she has gallery space she goes to work in the morning probably not at nine but maybe 10 whatever she's there all day painting framing organizing selling whatever and comes home has her cocktail and her dinner and I love hanging out with her because she's very like unapologetic about her work unapologetic about what she charges for her work and if we could all have that sense of what we bring to in terms of value, yeah, then we can find the place to do it. And it's not that it's not unchallenging; it's it's challenging. It's, yeah. And she grew up in a country that was a, a former Soviet communist, you wow. know, stronghold. So it's like you know she remembers when they didn't have food or they lived in Amazing. community housing or you could only be certain things. And I think her parents, her dad was a a photographer, or a painter, or, or something like that, and she she remembers that agitation of an artist. But
1: that's remarkable. I mean, I I really respect artists who can do that. I think I'll will say it's not always the mindset, but
0: I think sometimes if you borrow that mindset,
1: it's very very useful. I think you know there, there's so many different ways to think about it, but um, I will just lastly say that um, it's also I'm I'm intrigued by social entrepreneurship. Because mm. I feel like there's, and there's therein is this notion of generosity. Because I, I feel like that people really want to be generous, like and or it gives them joy to be generous. Yeah. And that when they see a business that's associated with doing some good, that, that yes. they feel like this is good. Yes. And so I think there's something about that that I want to tap into. Uh, and a lot of powerful stuff happening um, in terms of social uh, entrepreneurship and businesses that you know. Somewhere along the line in our corporate culture, we went awry. We went away from the basic notion that business should meet needs, and went to some other dark place um, where you know you make far too much money than you need, and and yeah. you know you don't care for your workers and and the people that you're whose land you're exploiting and things like that. That that was. That was sort of a sidestep, that was a dark sidestep to what really business is. I think. Yeah. Um, so maybe to some extent we've been brainwashed, and therefore, people who are creative and and are doing something um, from the heart or whatever, find it distasteful to be known as a business. You know, so maybe if we reframe the whole "what is business," then that would shift. So I, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, because the
0: businesses in our community want to be thought of as part of our community.
1: Absolutely.
0: And and maybe some of that is marketing spiel. I don't think all of it is, though. No,
1: I I think there's belief systems that are entrenched,
0: don't you think? And then in the corporate culture, in the corporate culture. about what corp- corporations are well
1: perspectives about corp, especially big corporations. I think yeah, yeah. Small businesses people tend to kind of look favorably on them. They're yep. you know working hard and it's a hard hard life and they're not yep. really the tax structure isn't good for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. But big corporations, I think people are really like, mm. but maybe that that frames how they think about all business, uh, or, you know, so I, I think there's a lot of, um, reframing, oh, another coach, you know, coaching can help with that too, Yes, 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 yeah.
0: Well, do you have any final thoughts? I think we're getting about time that we need to probably wrap it up.
1: Well, I think what I am reminded of because my brain thinks big picture that all this that we've talked about is sort of interconnected and yeah. we are one big web of humanity and thought thoughts drives inclinations feelings hurts it's all connected somehow and um
0: that's kind of what i hope my podcast is about <laughs> So that was lovely. <laughs> Seriously, like you want you want people to come in and, and I want people to come in and talk about sort of their passions, what their interests are, a little bit of their history, why they're connected, perhaps if they're local to the community or the greater community. But I love to also see the intersection, like because we mm-hmm. always have that intersection. So I think the, what you were saying is very lovely because that's sort of what I hope the podcast does. So. Well, I'm glad. Anything else? I kind of interrupted your thought. I'm sorry. No,
1: no. um, No, the the only last thing I would say is that we are all connected. Humans are all connected, and sometimes it's the differences that allow us to re-reflect on who we are, and then that makes that bond stronger. Um, So when you encounter someone from a different culture or from a different background, you reflect on how you're different from them, but then you come back to how we're same, we're the same. Yeah. And uh, so those two poles, I think, are so interesting. Uniqueness, we're unique and uh,
0: and different, and we're also the same. Well, that's... One of my favorite things, I'm like, very high in the curiosity scale, so I love asking questions, and I love hearing about people's stories. So thank you so much for coming on and just sharing a little bit about yours, and I'll be very inst- interested to see where you take Malden creates. So thank you. and thank you for all you do with the community. Seriously.
1: Thank you. And thank you for asking the questions and for sharing a little bit about your story. I really was... I probably uh, talked too much about myself. No, I enjoyed it (laughs) thoroughly.
0: Thank you. And uh, so this was um, Hi Felicia Podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan. my guest today was Osa Schwab. Osa. 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 Why do I want to put a sh in there? (laughs) Schwab. Because you get Schwab on there. Yes. Um, And sometimes at the end of our show, people say... Bye, Felicia. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. <laughs> <laughs>